Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with John Barker, who heads the Ohio Restaurant Association. We'll talk about the impact the pandemic is having on his industry. We'll also talk about the minimum wage and tipping and whether food delivery services are a good thing. Then courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has a segment about a couple of bars and restaurants in Columbus and also stories about the Civilian Review Board being formed in Columbus, along with body cameras and the Whitehall Police Department. In about 35 minutes, we'll switch to Washington for some comments from Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman talking about the COVID relief package being worked on, and I'll talk to Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown about it. Then I'll wrap up the hour talking with Mike Schettinger, president of Schettinger Funeral and Cremation Service. We'll talk about the impact the pandemic has had on that industry. First up on Columbus Perspective, we've talked to him in the past since the pandemic has begun. We thought it was time to get back with him again. It's John Barker, president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. How you doing, John? Good, Dave. Nice, nice to be here. Thanks for talking to us. How big is uh, the restaurant industry in Ohio? biggest industry in terms of jobs, Dave. We um, have about 585,000 people who work uh, in the industry, and of course, many of those, it's a career. You know, they are um, managers and GMs and purchasing agents and um, uh, servers and cooks and line, you know, line cooks and on and on and on, right? And um, it's a big thing. You know, we employ a lot of people and uh, generates a lot of tax revenue for the state. Um, and uh, obviously, it's a big part of how we attract people to Ohio as well. You know, we've become a, um, you know, a foodie state in terms of we all we're all damn proud of the restaurants that we have, and we even have celebrity chefs in the state. So you know, we've, uh, uh, you know, we've we kind of found a, a, a nice spot for for uh, for restaurants and food service. What are the total number of restaurants? Any idea? Yeah, so um, there are about 23,500 places that somehow serve food to people, and um, some of those people do it in a little non-traditional ways, you know, compared to, say, 10 years ago, but they still serve food. So it could be a food truck, you know, is is some of our numbers, and um, caterers, and we, you know, that type of thing. Um, But they're all part of a big, you know, kind of a big industry, Wow. And that it would be, I'm trying to do my math in my head here, that would be about 300 per county if every county had the same population, which is amazing to think about. That's right. Now, we have some small counties that obviously underrepresent that. And, um, you know, if you look at uh, whether it's Cuyahoga County or Franklin or Montgomery and things like that, I mean, they over kind of over-index on the number of restaurants. But um, it's a big deal. Like, you know, people... Um, in the last 10, 20 years, it's really changed the way people use restaurants. They um, are not just places to go out to eat. I mean, they are places where people go and, uh, you know, celebrate and get together with friends. And um, and because the food, you know, so many restaurants have popped up, the food has to be really good or a restaurant's not going to survive. You know, so um, quality of food and types of food has exploded really in the last, say, 10, 15 years. Do you know how many have gone out of business because of the pandemic? Yeah, it's around 20% nationally, Dave. And um, we uh, we believe, based on the data that we're looking at, it's similar here in Ohio. That would, you know, push us in, say, the 4,000 location closures. And, uh, and and it does skew a little bit towards uh, places that 
are bars and and have food, you know what I mean, because they've been hurt the worst. And what I mean by that, you know, with restrictions and the curfew, they've really been under a tremendous amount of pressure. And, um, you know, sit-down restaurants, independent mom-and-pops have, have borne the brunt of, of this, and, uh, and it's really sad. To, it's really sad to watch it. Because those are buildings that are already in place with the infrastructure needed for a restaurant to exist there, will they return someday, do you think? Well, we do think that, uh, believe it or not, even during the pandemic, a few places have opened. It's a new business model that's opening, right? It's um, mainly a takeout, carryout type business model. We've seen things like uh, ghost kitchens pop up and, you know, just people are experimenting a little bit more, but, um, you know, when we get through the pandemic to the point that people are safe to go back out, and we don't know when that's going to be, uh, but it'll probably be after the rollout of the vaccines. It's likely, based on you know conversations that we have with consumers, that there's going to be some pent-up demand. And at that point, there may be an opportunity for people who have had to close to reopen. Now, they may not reopen in the same place. They may not reopen with the same business. Um, but if they still, if you're still in love with the restaurant business, you can see some of that. And we're hoping, we're hoping for a bit of a, a resurgence, hopefully later in 2021 and, and into 2022. Talking with John Barker, president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. So right now the curfew has been moved an hour later to 11 p.m. with a possibility of it soon going to midnight. Is that right? Yeah, um, we worked with the governor, you know, uh, at first on the curfew because at one point. Many states were, if you remember, moving to shut down indoor dining, and some states did it in in, uh, places like New York and California and even Michigan nearby and Pennsylvania. Our governor tried to do a little more of a balanced approach rather than shutting down indoor dining. He looked at the science and said, well, maybe we can affect, um, you know, kind of society in a slightly different way by putting a curfew and having people not out quite as much, quite as late. And... um, You know, it seems to have worked. And, uh, you know, we went from a 10 o'clock to an 11 o'clock curfew um, a little over a week ago uh, because the the science is telling us that uh, the cases are coming down and hospitalizations and ICU numbers are coming down. And um, and so hopefully, you know, if that continues, we'll move to midnight next. And uh, how big of a difference does that make for for bars, I guess, especially at that time of night? Yeah, well. You know, for each hour uh, in the evening, it's so helpful to restaurants and bars. For restaurants, you know, what it does, it gives them that opportunity to have that second or you know, maybe even a third turn of their tables, you know, uh, for, for, you know, for a restaurant. And that can mean the difference between uh, breaking even uh, that day versus losing money. And that's all they're trying to do. They are trying to get back to break even. That's how far down they are right now. For bars, it's uh, it's everything because right? a lot of bars, you know, uh, particularly bars that cater to younger people, like they don't get busy until you know seven, eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, and um, being able to open a little bit later. And by the way, they're still going to have to follow all the dine safe uh, requirements, which is going to make it a different experience. But you have to be seated, you have to wear your mask until it's time to eat or drink. Um, you, you know, you have to make six foot distancing, with the exception of the the bubble you come in with and that bubble meaning people you live with and you trust and know have been, you know, following, um, you know, all the CDC requirements. Um, and so it'll be a little different experience, but I do think it'll be very helpful to bars. Of course, the only way that bars are going to get all the way back is when we eventually are able to lift all restrictions 
and consumers feel safe. And those are two big those are two big steps. Uh, and we don't you know we don't control the timing on that. Are the big city entertainment districts around sporting venues uh, holding together? No, uh, I would say anywhere that um, you know really relied on sporting venues and or the arts. So, you know, musicals and plays and concerts uh, in each one of our big cities, those areas, quite honestly, are ghost towns. Um, and the restaurants there that really, you know, benefited from that, if they're open, they're, they're barely hanging on. And the only way they're doing it is take out, you know, take out meals uh, because there's nobody downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the office buildings are quiet. There's very few people in any of our big downtowns. You know, I've had a chance to go around to each one of our major cities, um, um, Cleveland, Cincinnati, of course, here in Columbus, uh, Toledo, and um, Akron, and uh, each one of them looks the same. Um, a lot of boarded-up businesses, uh, uh, you know, not much going on. And so running a retail or a restaurant business downtown right now is has to be the toughest environment of any time. And I've been in the restaurant business 30 years. I was going to say, that's got to be a shocking uh, view for somebody like you. It is. Um, it's startling, quite honestly, you know, to see it uh, because downtowns, all of them in Ohio, were, were coming back at slightly different paces, but the exciting people moving back downtown. Um, and the restaurant business usually helps that, right? The restaurant business grows, and that makes more people want to come downtown, and great chefs choose to open restaurants downtown. If you take Cleveland, for example, you know, our most acclaimed chef in the state is Michael Simon. And he announced just a few months ago he shut down Lola's, which is, you know, without a doubt, um, you know, the most acclaimed restaurant uh, in Cleveland. He was right on East 4th, which is the big entertainment district. And, uh, you know, he hated to shut it down, but he said, I'm losing money every day. Wow. So when uh, this year, uh, later in the year, perhaps, uh, if if baseball can get back to, you know, full-sized crowds and and then the football season – well, those venues, uh, you know, that's where the, the biggest potential would be for a restaurant owner, I would think. Would they be set to reopen or pick up the slack again? Yeah, you know, they're going to need some uh, They're going to need some help there because if they're shut down right now, you know, they may or may not be eligible for different state and federal money that's out there. Um, but when they reopen, they're going to need a lot of capital. They're going to need capital to bring people back, to train people, to get the... Uh, the restaurant, you know, back up to speed with equipment and then, and then obviously to market the fact that they exist again. And um, that's expensive. You know, there's kind of a model that we use in the business, you know, and what that would cost to do. And um, either that or starting from scratch is going to require a lot of help. So, you know, we're, we are working uh, with our various cities uh, about incentives because we want each one of our cities to bounce back uh, to, the, to the way it was not that long ago. We're all going to have to work together on this. It's going to be, unfortunately, we think it's going to be a long road. It's not going to be, you know, suddenly, you know, the sporting venue opens, everything's back to normal. It's going to, it's going to take a while. The governor's proposing some money for bars and restaurants, and then you've got uh, the Biden administration with a much larger federal aid package than what has been discussed recently. What is your take on those situations? Yeah. So, um, so the governor did come out, you know, with some, some good news in his proposed budget, and he set aside four hundred sixty million dollars for you know economic stimulus, two hundred million of that for restaurants and bars. And so, you know, we're working through the details that has to go through the legislature, and we'll be working on that. But um, that would be a heck of a lifeline uh, for a lot of restaurants and bars because that's on top of some other grants that the state has made available, as well as the. Um, 
Bureau of Workers' Compensation dividends that came to everybody um, last year. So all those add up. At the federal level, um, there is there are three versions of uh, kind of stimulus coming through. There's the President's um, American Rescue Plan. The Democrats have a version of theirs, and then uh, the Republicans have come back with a version of theirs. Um, in all cases, they're talking about specific relief, additional relief for uh, restaurants, because it's the industry, obviously, that has been um, impacted uh, perhaps the most of, of any in the United States. And, um, and, and it's interesting that there's actually even kind of a, a regional change in this or, you know, changes in this. And what I mean by that, the northern states uh, that also have weather are down significantly because you can't do any outdoor dining. And then, um, you know, there's about 40 states that have some sort of restrictions, Dave, on top of, of uh, everything else. So, for example, if you go to New York City, the, many of those restaurants have not had indoor dining for months. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think elected officials get it. They know that um, they want this business to come back. And they know how important it is. It's, a, it's the heartbeat of America, right? Us, you know, enjoying restaurants, all the people that are employed. It's the second biggest industry in the United States after sort of the whole um, healthcare business. Wow. Talking with John Barker, president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association, you are leery of a move toward a $15 minimum wage. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that in Ohio, we already have a minimum wage. It moves up every year. It moves up. It's pegged to an inflation index. Uh, um, and we think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and by the way, it's 880. Very few of our restaurants pay anybody 880. The only folks that are being paid 880 are typically high school and college students who arrive, you know, at the doorstep of a business without any skills at all. And they step into that job. And that's where they learn their very first life skills and some business skills. Um, other than that, you can't hire anybody at the minimum wage. Um, and so the market's already doing a pretty good job with this. A very small percent of the entire workforce makes minimum wage. And so it's become a political issue, Dave. Unfortunately, people like to talk about these kind of things because they believe it can help change elections and, and show tremendous support. It's, you know, it's clearly being responsible. You look at these topics fairly. You try to understand, well, what would be the impact of raising the federal minimum wage and doubling it? What would be the impact? Well, the impact, uh, and I've been in this industry for 30 years, the, the impact would be fewer jobs and rising prices because a business owner cannot absorb a doubling you know, of their labor line. Just nobody can, right? And so, um, you know, looking at all that fairly, we would rather see kind of a stair-step approach to minimum wage at the federal level moving up slightly and then some adjustments based on regions because you know a minimum wage needs to be a certain amount in new york city versus marysville ohio they're very different in terms of the cost of living and if it's a tipped employee of a restaurant that's a complicated uh, formula for them the way they get paid right yeah so right now if you're a, if you're a server who um, is able to make tips you're guaranteed the uh, 880 um, the restaurant owner right now is allowed to pay you 440 as long as you make enough tips to cover that. And, and many of our servers, well, the average server is making between 16 and $25 uh, an hour. They don't want a federal minimum wage because that would eliminate the tip credit. So they are 100% against this. And again, it's one of those topics that certain elected officials like to talk about. Hey, they're doing something to help people. They really don't know what they're talking about. 
um, because they're not in the industry. They don't understand it. So it's our job to educate. We're spending a lot of time with elected officials to make sure they do understand that. So we would be 100% opposed to elimination of the tip credit. And then uh, on the minimum wage, uh, we would like to see the minimum wage move up over time and have adjustments for things depending on, you know, parts of the country, as well as some carve-outs, you know, for young people who are just starting and, and things like that. I think that's a smart way to approach it, so it's good for everybody. There are some who say that the whole tip system is kind of flawed, that, that there are other countries in Europe and other places where they don't even do that, and that it's just a kind of an odd system that we have to begin with. What is your take on that? Yeah, no, it is. It's absolutely an American cultural thing, and uh, one that's been ingrained in our society for, for decades now, and um, we think it, it actually works very well. And if you ask the people who are at the front line on this, right, and we do survey after survey after survey, they do not want to see the tip credit eliminated. We have, we have servers that we have talked to that make, that their W-2 at the end of the year is $100,000. Wow. Why would they want to go back to a $15 minimum wage? <laughs> right. Makes no sense. And one other thing I wanted to touch on, John, uh, John Barker, uh, President, CEO, Ohio Restaurant Association. These delivery food services, they've uh, kind of gotten into fights with cities who are trying to control them to some extent and the fees that they charge restaurants. This has got to be a, a sticky issue for you, I would think. It is. You know, we have gotten involved with this because our operators have asked us to. You know, the, the concept of a third-party delivery makes a lot of sense, particularly for businesses that can't do it on their own. And in this world with pandemic, it's been a godsend for a lot of consumers, right, who don't want to go out and they want to have food delivered in. It's really good. And, um, and pizza guys have done this forever, right? Pizza uh, delivery is, is uh, another American cultural icon. But the problem is a lot of the third party, Dave, is charging as much as 30% of the check. The cost goes back to the restaurant. <clears throat> and when that happens, most restaurants can't make any money on that transaction. And so what we've asked the third party delivery folks to do during the pandemic and for a period after that, to lower that, that cost down to half of that to 15%. And uh, they're reluctant to do it. Um, you know, we've, we've had, you know, some progress. But um, so what's happened is some cities here in Ohio have taken that on themselves. And so uh, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland have all passed uh, legislation to limit those fees to 15%. And we think that's much more reasonable. We've asked mayors of many other cities to consider this. It's the right thing to do right now. You know, we don't like a whole lot of, um, you know, kind of controls on top of businesses and so forth. But we're in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody should be trying to make sure that the restaurants survive, including the third-party delivery. And we're talking about the Postmates and the Uber Eats and the DoorDash. Do you recommend that people check the website of the restaurant they want food from first to see if they deliver on their own before using a, another service? Well, the most profitable thing that can happen to a restaurant is you go in and you eat in their restaurant. And that, that is the best way for helping a restaurant. The second best way is to pick it up yourself, right? Uh, right? But Americans, you know, let's just be honest, Americans have gotten used to clicking a button and something shows up at the door. <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> the restaurant delivering it themselves is the third best. And then the fourth best is a third party delivery. So that's the order that uh, people should consider if they want to help that restaurant survive. It really is a, a complicated, uh, fascinating topic because you can certainly see how restaurants need that service and yet can also be kind of victimized by it. And yet, again, too, these days it's a big driver of the economy itself with all these extra drivers that have jobs now. 
That's right. And so, you know, we don't want to do away with that either. Um, but again, I think during a pandemic, everybody has to help out a little bit. You know, we've had landlords who give people a little bit of break on their rent. We've had suppliers who work with their restaurateurs, right, because they want them to be around. They want them to survive. And, uh, you know, the third-party firms, are uh, they, you know, they're t- telling us they're not making any money, but, you know, DoorDash went public, and their IPO was, uh, uh, you know, around $70 billion when it first came out. So, um, you know, they probably have the ability to, to carry this for a while, help out, be part of the solution, and that's what we're asking them to do. You know, and I think, um, you know, we, we think they can come around on this, and what, that's what we're hoping for. John Marker, President, CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, the last, I mean, last thing I tell you is, you know, um, obviously support your restaurants if you can. You know, these are your friends. These are your neighbors who work in these places. And some of them, if they're the owner, they have their life, they have their entire life savings oftentimes tied up into these businesses. And, uh, you know, for people who are out of work, because we're at about 19% unemployment in the hospitality industry, Dave, in the state of Ohio. So, um you know, if you're uh, willing to help out a little bit, we have a relief fund uh, that uh, all the dollars that come into that relief fund at OhioRestaurant.org. Um, we send those back out in the form of grants to unemployed and furloughed restaurant workers to try to help them get through this and hopefully get their job back as soon as the uh, as soon as the pandemic uh, gets a little bit better and uh, and we get the vaccines out there. And I saw a release uh, from uh, the Restaurant Association recently that it's helped out a tremendous number of restaurant workers. How do folks uh, find out how to help, John? Where do they go? Yeah, so Ohio Restaurants um, uh, Relief, uh, it's right on our website. There's a whole big section out there, and it's, it's pretty easy. Folks can make a donation uh, directly to that. We do run some different promotions at different times. Last week we had a uh, pizza with a purpose promotion running across the state. People, if they ordered a pepperoni pizza, the, um, the participating restaurants gave a dollar for every pizza with pepperoni on it uh, to the relief fund. So. We're doing things like that, um, and, um, you know, it's just, you know, I've had people send us a $5 check, and they say, I don't have a whole lot of money. I really miss going to my restaurant. I want to help these people. Here's what I can give, right? So Ohioans have a big heart. We really take care of each other, and that's that's what we're seeing. It's tremendous. John Barker, again, president, CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. Thanks so much for your time, John. Good luck with the next few crucial weeks. Hopefully things will go well. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday morning for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Hospitalizations because of COVID-19 in Ohio are on the way down. Because of that, Governor Mike DeWine pushed the statewide curfew to 11 at night instead of 10. 10 TV's Angela Reiger talked with business owners about this change in policy. 
the trajectory is still upward. Um, things have, they, they slowed down a bit, though. I mean, At Ron Jordan's restaurant headquarter in Dublin, things were looking up. Then came the stay-at-home advisories and statewide 10 o'clock curfew. If we can get it lifted, I think all things will be moving in the right direction. And as of now, it looks like Ohio's on its way, with hospitalizations dropping below 3,500 for seven straight days. The curfew is now pushed back to 11. If they drop below 3,000 and stay there, the curfew is midnight. And when hospitalizations get below 2,500, the curfew may go away altogether. With this moving target, restaurant and bar owners are feeling cautiously optimistic. They know how quickly things can change. I just want there to be some consistency across the board in terms of people getting better and us seeing that we're, we're truly turning that corner going into these warmer months. And he's not alone. Greg Lehman is feeling it too. We chose not to reopen and we continue to sit on the sidelines and wait. His restaurant, Watershed Kitchen and Bar, has been closed since March. Fortunately, their distillery has kept them busy. They also used this time to add space to their restaurant. And we know that when we open back up, we won't be able to fill all of our seats because of uh, distancing. But adding those extra 24 seats will help us. He hopes by late spring, early summer, they'll be able to reopen. Until then, though, seeing the easing of restrictions, that's encouraging. Maybe it will mean more people will start to feel ready to return to their local favorites. The restaurant tours need something to cheer about. They need something to get excited about. If you want to go out and have a good time, come and do it in a responsible manner with us. Because we're going to do everything in our power to, to, to make sure you're safe and to make sure your environment is everything it needs to be. So we can keep the numbers down and keep moving in the right direction. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Rygard, 10 TV News. And while things are looking a little better, unemployment is on the rise here in Ohio. The week ending January 23rd saw about 50,000 Ohioans, Ohioans filed for unemployment. That number appears to be going up. Compare that to the week before, where we saw 42,000 new claims, and the previous week, only 37,000. Ohio's unemployment system has struggled to keep up ever since the pandemic started. Not only was it dealing with a historic number of claims, it then had to navigate a new federal pandemic unemployment system. That's on top of thousands of fraudulent benefit claims that slowed relief for people who really need it. The governor was asked about those problems again. This time he addressed a solution. We're going to bring some people in from the private sector, quite candidly, to run the unemployment section. Uh, it is, I can make all the excuses in the world. I could stand here, but that doesn't do anybody any good who's not getting a check. I mean, there's reasons for this, but we got to get it fixed. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther announced a demotion for Columbus Police Chief Thomas Quinlan. The mayor says the community lost faith in the chief. For months now, we've seen the news conferences, the two of them side by side, addressing the need for change in the police department. But in a statement, the mayor says it became clear Chief Quinlan could not implement the reform and change he expects. So he says Chief Quinlan agreed to step down. Quinlan did release a statement. And it said, in part, the opportunity to serve as your chief of police has been the honor of my career. While I very much hope to continue in that role, I respect the safety director's decision and the community's need to go in a different direction. Deputy Chief Mike Woods will now serve as interim chief as a national search begins for a permanent chief. Woods tweeted saying, quote, I will do my best to provide the leadership and service the residents of Columbus and the men and women of the Columbus police deserve.
All of this comes as the city of Columbus moves closer to seating a civilian review board. In total, 209 people applied. Back in November, voters approved issue two, which changed the city's charter to add a civilian review board of the Columbus Division of Police and add an office for the inspector general. 10TV's Lacey Crisp takes a deeper look at those who would like to be part of the board. After the protests over the summer, Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther said it was a priority to form an independent board that will oversee the Columbus Division of Police. Members will be appointed by me in consultation with Columbus City Council. The nine-member board will investigate allegations of misconduct and use of force incidents involving Columbus police officers. We now know the pool Mayor Ginther will pull from to form the new civilian review board. The applicants range from OSU students to former Columbus police chief Walter Distelswag, Adrian Hood, the mother of Henry Green, who was shot and killed by Columbus police in 2016, also applied. Janet Jackson, the former president and CEO of United Way of Central Ohio, also applied. Six pastors applied as well as 18 attorneys, including defense attorney Byron Potts and the general counsel for the Ohio Fraternal Order of Police. 20 applicants say they have had a negative interaction with Columbus police. There are also several former officers who applied, including two members who were a part of the critical incident response team. We expect people to be fair and reasonable, okay, like they would want to be treated. That's all we've ever asked for. Um, we're okay with, uh, you know, the general concept of people reviewing our activities. Board members will serve staggered terms of at least three years. A majority of the board must be Columbus residents, but residency alone was not a requirement, and some applicants are from surrounding suburbs. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. The city of Columbus is focused on trying to change body-worn camera policies for the entire division of police, but are there police departments that have already done this? The answer is yes. Once again, here's Crime Tracker 10's Lacey Crisp. Get on ground flat. Most body-worn camera videos look the same, but what is drastically different from department to department are the policies of what is recorded and when. So our policy is, is anytime the officers interact with the public or suspects or uh, any call that could, could result in that, they turn on the body cameras. In Whitehall, patrol officers grab a camera from this bank at the beginning of their shift and it records the whole time, no matter if the officer hits the button or not. There's a 12-hour hard drive that is going to continue to always record. It's not like a loop. It's still the policy for officers to hit record if they are responding to a critical incident. When they do, a file is created and downloaded at the end of their shift when they dock the camera to charge it. It is only that video that is uploaded to the server. But there's a failsafe if the officer doesn't hit record or do so before an incident. But what's nice is the other video is still there. And if, for instance, something happened where the officer didn't have time to hit his button, forgot to hit his button, it's a critical incident, we can go back and create a file. Whitehall Deputy Chief Dan Kelso says officers can turn off their cameras when having conversations with their command staff or while they're on a break. He admits officers were skeptical at first, but have adapted. Once they saw the, how the body cameras actually protected them, especially against complaints where people may come and say, hey, this officer was rude, he did this, he did that. He says Whitehall is constantly updating their policy and recently added audio on the look back function and their SWAT team will also begin wearing them for some missions. 
In Whitehall, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. President Biden laid out his agenda on climate change. These are another series of executive actions aimed at elevating climate as a top national security and foreign policy issue. Today uh, is Climate Day at the White House. It's a whole-of-government approach to put climate change at the center of our domestic, national security, and foreign policy. The actions include setting goals to conserve 30 percent of federal land and water by 2030, as well as doubling renewable energy production from offshore winds. The president says he's not going to ban fracking, but the president's plans are already getting opposition from members of Congress and the oil and gas industry. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend from our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Monday of this past week, Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman and nine other Republican senators met with President Joe Biden at the White House to pitch their plan for a $600 billion stimulus package, about a third the size of the $1.9 trillion that President Biden and the Democrats want. The Republican plan would include $1,000 checks for people making $40,000 or less instead of the $1,400 checks for people perhaps as high as $75,000 for an individual, although that is still being worked out by Democrats. A couple of days after the meeting, Senator Portman took to the Senate floor to talk about it. This runs about five minutes. This week we will have a number of amendments about the budget, and this all goes toward a a process called reconciliation if uh, the two budgets um, are agreed upon. As for me, one senator, uh, I am very interested in helping President Biden make good on the pledge that he made on the steps of the Capitol. On the West Steps, just that way in the United States Capitol, on Inauguration Day, January 20th, the president said that he wanted to bring our country together. He wanted to help heal those wounds. He wanted us to work across the aisle. He wanted to go back to an era here where we actually sat down debated things, worked them out together, and therefore helped bring our country together. I hope that with regard to the COVID-19 discussions, that Republicans and Democrats will agree to keep working on charting the federal response to the ongoing health care and economic crisis in a bipartisan way. It's the one area we've done it. You, know, you think of all the division and on all of the times when we haven't been able to find agreement on things around here, One place we have been able to find agreement has been with regard to COVID-19. Specifically, we have passed five different bills, five bills, with big majorities, bipartisan majorities. One was actually by unanimous consent. The most recent one was just five weeks ago or less at the end of the year when Congress passed a $900 billion COVID relief, relief package in an entirely bipartisan way. $900 billion, by the way, makes that the second most expensive legislative package 
that Congress has ever passed, $900 billion. The first one was the CARES Act, which also related to the coronavirus pandemic that we are in. Over $4 trillion, that's trillion with a T, has been spent on this, larger than our typical annual budget for everything in government. And you know what? It's a crisis, and we needed to step up to the plate. But now, while the ink is still dry, drying on the uh, bill that we passed at the end of the year, the Biden administration has proposed another $1.9 trillion to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. My own view is that, again, this is an area where we've been able to come together. Let's do it again. Is there more need out there? Well, when Congress passed the $900 billion legislation, we all said this is a bridge to get us to between now and when the vaccines are readily available, which we all hope happens sooner rather than later. But there may be some things we need to do in the interim. I think there are. And maybe some things after the March-April time period that we had thought about for the vaccine availability. The vaccines are moving out more slowly than expected. So I, for one, am willing to sit down with Republicans and Democrats alike, as we have done, again, five different times, to work on how we can come together to provide that bridge to a better time when the economy will improve because the COVID-19 issue will have been addressed. My concern is that, again, today we started down a track by starting on the budget to end up with budget reconciliation, which would mean a 50-vote rather than a 60-vote margin because the other side of the aisle, Democrats think it would be better not to try to work out something on a bipartisan basis, but to simply use their majority to get something through here that they would like to do that's consistent with where President Biden's $1.9 trillion package is. We'll see. Maybe they could be successful at that, maybe not, because it would require every member on that side of the aisle to agree with the $1.9 trillion package, which is a comprehensive, complicated package, which includes a number of things addressed to COVID-19, but another number of things that are unrelated to COVID-19, some of which are popular on the other side of the aisle in particular, like changes in tax law that have nothing to do with COVID-19, changes to the federal minimum wage that have nothing to do with COVID-19. But we'll see. But even if they could pass it by the barest majority, given that it's a 50-50 Senate, it's not the right way to go for our country. I don't think anybody truly believes it's the best thing for our country. Again, if we can't come together as Republicans and Democrats, as we have proven that we can time and time again over the last year, what can we come together on? And wouldn't that poison the well? Wouldn't it make it harder for us then to find that common ground on things like infrastructure investments, on things like retirement security? I think it's going to be harder if we start off on the wrong foot, if we start off in a purely partisan way. Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman on the Senate floor this week talking about the COVID-19 relief package. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Thursday morning this week, I talked with Ohio's Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown about the COVID relief package and other topics. What's your take on the the pandemic relief package uh, being formulated right now? What do you think is going to happen? Yesterday, a group of us went to the White House, met with President Biden. Um, The package will work. We need to go big. 
if we don't go big, we will see a long-term scarring of the economy because people have been out of work for so long. Uh, we want to get them. We want to defeat this virus first of all. Get those people back to work. Uh, get our children in school, especially. The economy can never take off until our kids are in school and their parents can get back to a semblance of normalcy in their lives. And the damage to children for being out of school month after month after month is is so many middle class and low income kids have have had to um, to suffer. We know that. Upper income kids, in many cases, those school districts or those private schools have been able to have had the money to open, but so many schools that serve so many middle class and poor kids in this country have not. Do you have a problem with lowering the income threshold for those who would get the $1,400 check? I'm fine with um, my, my goal. I, I don't think wealthy people should get these checks, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm fine with lowering the cutoff level. I just want to get this done. I want to get the help in people's hands. I want to make sure unemployed workers are helped. I want to make sure that, that schools are open, that schools have enough money to open their schools safely. I want to make sure that, that we get money to local communities so they don't have to lay off police, fire, sanitation, street crews, uh, park, park employees. Uh, I want to make sure that we don't, that, that, that we, that people are not evicted in the middle of the winter, in the middle of the pandemic. Those are, those are the priorities we need to follow. Um, that's what the Biden plan does. That's why we need to pass it sooner rather than later. Senator, if the vaccine works as hoped and by, say, late summer, fall, we've got the majority of the problems behind us in terms of virus spread. Is the U.S., uh, will it be on track to recover from this in a timely manner? I'm optimistic, especially yesterday after hearing the president say, we knew his promise back when he took office or a little before he said, we want to max vaccine, vaccinate a hundred million people in a hundred days, a million a day. They are exceeding that number. So if they can continue to exceed that number, if we as a society can in February and March and April and May and June, much of, we won't be, we won't be done with vaccines then, but much of it will be behind us. We'll begin to a, be able to return to some normalcy and I think our economy, because of this package we're doing now to make sure that, that people can start going back to work and get help if they're not working, are not evicted, are back in school, our economy's poised by sometime, I assume nobody really knows, late summer to really begin to grow again. Do you have concerns about uh, West, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a more conservative Democrat, the, the power that he wields in a 50-50 split in the Senate? Uh, every any when it's fifty fifty, any one of us has uh, can do lots That's of true. things and lots of mischief. But I, I have heard nothing that from Senator Manchin or any other colleague that they don't. I, I think every one of us knows this is a serious problem. Every one of us knows we need to go big. Every one of us hears the stories and sees the studies that if we don't go big, that our economy can be hurt long term uh, with dramatically and. Uh, I, I don't have real concerns that any any one of the 50 senators, 50 Democratic senators, I have little concern that any of us will fall short of doing this right. I wanted to ask, too, about Medicare and Social Security. You know, we're getting closer and closer to the time when Social Security begins to have a, a funding problem. Do you expect that to be addressed during the Biden administration? Uh, I spoke yesterday with the chair of the Social Security subcommittee in the House. Uh, he is very engaged. We've been talking about this for some time. 
there are ways without raising taxes on Social Security beneficiaries that we can solidify this and maybe even uh, grow a better cost of living adjustment than we've done. Uh, you know, people that are people that are DECA millionaires pay very, very, very little Social Security tax, and we can we can set the system up. No tax increase for moderate middle income, even upper middle class people, but a tax, in, but a but finding a way to fund Social Security. It's not really a tax; it's really an insurance plan uh, to to make this system work. And last question, Senator. I know this is one that you, uh, the type of question you don't like to entertain, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, if, it, if with the uh, the race in 2024, if it came down to like Romney, Ted Cruz, and Trump, how do you think a mix like that would play out with Republican voters? Um, Romney, Ted Cruz, and Trump. Um, well, Romney, I, I like Mitt Romney. I mean, I, I didn't vote for him against Barack Obama, but I think he's honest. I think he's honorable. I don't know that he'd want to be president. Uh, he wanted to be president back in 2012. Um, but I think the, his, the, the Republican Party would be moving in the right direction if it chose Mitt Romney over Ted Cruz or uh, over Ted Cruz or Donald Trump. I, I normally don't like to speculate in the other party's business, but um, I think Romney has held himself well and showed more courage than pretty much the other 50 Republicans combined in the U.S. Senate. All right, Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Michael Schettinger, president of Schettinger Funeral and Cremation Service in Central Ohio. How are you? I'm good, Dave. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. We talked to you, uh, must have been back, I'm thinking like April or May of last year when the pandemic had just hit and businesses were shutting down, and now here we are, February of the following year. How are things going? Well, it's been a challenging year, as you can imagine. Um... Things have, uh, you know, gone to being pretty restrictive to back open again, but we're still not all the way to where we used to be. Just to give you a quick update, the majority of our families do still see the importance of gathering, and so we're doing that in the form of a visitation where people can come, pay their respects, and leave, and we have a turnover of our crowd, which keeps our size small and allows us to, you know, keep people socially distant. And then our services have been primarily private because we can't take the risk of saying the funeral's Friday at 11 and 200 people show up and we can't fit that many in our building. So most of our services have been private, but we offer a complimentary live streaming on our website. And a lot of people, we just had uh, one we did yesterday at 125 uh, viewers online while the service was going on, which is great. And then it's up recorded for, you know, the future and people can watch it that couldn't be there live. So it has been challenging. It's it's not I can't we're not supposed to serve food or coffee. It just seems weird to not even be able to offer somebody a cup of coffee. And um, the other thing that's just been a challenging for us is we're in the emotional business and our funeral directors build this relationship with people on a pretty deep level. And the natural human thing to do is you want to give them a hug and you just still can't do that. So that's been one of our bigger challenges. Yeah, I was going to say, even aside from hugging, it's just such a, an empathetic 
time in, in people's lives, uh, you know, when they're saying goodbye to a loved one. And, and if it's somebody who died from COVID, then the hospital, there was separation there as well. And, and it's just heartbreaking all the way around. You know, you're a good resource for this because you have uh, such a stamp on Central Ohio. Give us a little bit of the history of Sheddinger Funeral Homes. Well, thank you for asking. We are uh, we were founded in 1855 by my great-great-great-grandpa, and um, we now have uh, 12 locations throughout Central Ohio. Our newest funeral home in Dublin just opened a few months ago and has um, had a lot of funerals already. I think we've done over 50 funerals in our first few months. Um, it's a really... Uh, just a modern building with lots of natural light and fire and water features both inside and outside so it allows for a lot of a healing environment I think for the families we're serving and uh, we've got about 200 associates and um, you know the question everyone asks me is how has COVID affected your business Um, and I will just say you know after being a 165 year old company it's hard to set records but we served more families in 2020 than we've ever done in the history of our company by a lot Um, it's just the number of people that uh, you know the normal death rate and then you add overdose deaths and you add um, COVID deaths and just some of the other causes that are increasing and it um, it, it was a, a a year that was um, unexpected and you add you know a significant volume increase of the number of funerals you're uh, performing and then you don't think about how you're reduced staff you know we did have people get the virus and then we had a lot of people quarantined because of potential exposure and so you're doing a significantly higher volume and you're not fully staffed and it just creates you know as you can imagine the healthcare industry dealing with it everyone's dealing with it even you know regular work offices and so forth but it's been a very challenging year of um intense uh, workload and stress, but our staff has been great. They've been very resilient. Um, We continue to serve families, I think, with the same quality of care we always have. It's just, you know, you're working a lot of days off. You're not, the day doesn't end at five o'clock like it used to, and it's just, um, I'm so appreciative of how everyone's continued to give great care to our families. It's a great point and an an important one when you talk about the number of deaths last year, because I think there's still a faction of people who think that this coronavirus is overblown or maybe even doesn't exist. And I saw a story that said that all-cause mortality in Ohio last year was 17,000 more than what would normally be accountable. And about 10,000 of those would be coronavirus deaths, and the opioid epidemic would take care of a large portion of the rest of it. Yeah, just to put a month in perspective, I mean, you know, being as old as we are, our record month by number of funerals that we ever had was 270, Um, and I think it was a couple Januarys ago, the winters, people don't realize funeral business is seasonal, Uh, the winter is always busier for us than the summer uh, because of illness and, you know, more sedentary lifestyle. and uh, we served over 400 families in December. Wow. So, I mean, you go from, your, I mean, it's not just year over year. That's record month to just December, and that's a significant increase. And I think about 25% of the deaths uh, are COVID-related. So, you know, roughly 100 out of those 400 were COVID deaths. So you can see just that's just, I mean, we're not staffed for that in a normal day. With the limited access uh, at the funeral home itself for services, what about at the cemetery? Does that open up a little more? 
uh, each cemetery has its own rules. Some of our cemeteries require no more than 10. Some just require you to stand six feet apart, which means not everybody can fit under the tent. But uh, for the most part, right now, most cemeteries don't have any rules or restrictions. They did back in April and May, and those have been relaxed because you are outside. The funeral industry has been uh, trying to, to get moved up on the coronavirus vaccine list, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's been something we've really been pushing hard for the last few months. Starting in about November, we started uh, letting the governor know and other health uh, officials and elected officials that, you know, we're in the front lines dealing with COVID directly um, in a non-socially distant way, uh, not that we have a choice, in a couple different ways. What I mean by that is certainly our embalmers and a lot of our funeral directors are having to prepare a, a deceased person uh, by dressing them, doing embalming, cremating them, whatever it is, and you're in physical contact with a contagious person. And then you have to remember that we're making the planning meetings and we're hosting them in our buildings, and the survivors are all most likely exposed to the virus of their family members. So we, on a daily basis, are interacting with highly contagious um, environments and we were told that we were 1b in the priority well we're doing 1b now and we're not anywhere near being told the vaccine will be coming to us the best answer i got was maybe march or april Hmm. and so you know our state association did a great job of um, lobbying the decision makers and we got a lot of traction just last week the newspapers the tv stations all covered and actually one of the tv stations asked the governor directly in his press conference last week when will funeral directors and embalmers get vaccinated and you know put on the spot he just said something to the tune up we're looking into it but it is i mean we're really pushing hard to do that because we need it we deserve it not that all the other people who are high priority don't also but um you know most of them don't have that direct interaction with a person who's highly contagious Talking with Michael Schettinger, President, Schettinger Funeral and Cremation Service. I've read in recent years that cremation is on the rise. Has the pandemic made any difference on that front? You know, I haven't seen uh, the exact numbers. Yes, um, we are serving more cremation families now than we have in the past. Um, I don't have an exact statistic, but it did. Um, it reached 50% of all people's funerals about a year or two ago, and it's probably just a little higher than that now. I would imagine, though, that it just seems like mortality, for obvious reasons, is more in the forefront of people's minds these days. And I'm thinking pre-planning funerals or or being much more specific these days about what people wanted their services in the past. Is that accurate? Uh, You you bring up another really interesting point. I really thought last year the amount of people that pre-planned would be down because we can't have a, for most of March, April, and May, nobody wanted to meet in person or all the people that are in institutions, nursing homes, retirement communities, they weren't even allowed. They were all basically quarantined. And we deal with older people. Um, you know, an 80-year-old is more likely to pre-plan their funeral than a 30 for obvious reasons. And um, and they're just not as technologically advanced as we might want them to be to have that communication. And it amazed me how many of our families uh, said we want to pre-plan our funeral. We'll do it by a, a video chat or a phone call. And we, we created some 
technology to allow us to have people pick caskets and pick urns and other things on a, you know, sharing a website with them and walking them through some steps. My brother was really good at helping get that uh, created. So, uh, you know, 2020 ended and our number of funerals performed was at a record level. Our number of pre-planned funerals that we did last year was also a record by a lot. I mean, it was way over our previous record. So with all the restrictions and everything going against you, being able to connect with um, people that want to do this, which is primarily people over 60 years old, uh, we just, I think that the people thought about their own mortality more than ever before, and it created a huge demand on our advanced funeral planners. We have seven full-time advanced funeral planners, and they were meeting two or three people a day just trying to pre-plan funerals, and most people want to prepay also because shedding their locks in the prices and um, protects you against inflation, but um, I was just so proud of our advanced planning team because they were just as busy. And then, you haven't brought it up yet, but the third part of our company also just had an incredible year, and that was our pet department. The number of pet deaths, for whatever reason, or the number of families we served was up, up over a thousand families from the year before huh. with pet funerals. So just on all fronts, our, uh, our company was being tested with what our capacity was. So I'm interested in, in finding out about that. What is the demographic of someone who has a funeral for their pet? It's everybody. It's young, old, black, white, boy, girl. It's everybody. I don't know what percentage of Americans own a pet, but they're part of our family. And when that death occurs, they want to honor their life and do something dignified, just like they would for their human. And so we we served way more pet families than human families last year. Interesting. When uh, the pandemic ends and we return to whatever normal is going to be in the future, uh, yes. uh, what is your takeaway from all this, Mike? What What do you see down the line in terms of service or attitudes, all that kind of stuff? Well, first and foremost, it's my gratitude. It's my gratefulness for our staff for how uh, they took care of so many families with so many challenges and so many obstacles in their way. And um, our goal here is to create a healing experience for everybody. And I think we did a good job with that. Um, I hope that the people who didn't have full services um, realize that they missed, missed that and that, you know, the comfort of having people come and support them and uh, people talking about the life that's been lived is meaningful and people want that back. Um, our business could be challenged if everybody said, oh, you know, we did less of a funeral and it was fine and the future of funeral service is less funerals. Um, that would, you know, hurt us financially and I also think it might hurt people emotionally in, in their um, grief journey, but that will remain to be seen. Talking with Mike Schettinger, he's the president of Schettinger Funeral and Cremation Service. Anything else you'd like to add? No, thank you for the opportunity to share some of this information with your listeners. And um, I just, I'm like you, I can't wait till the majority of us have been vaccinated and the warm weather allows us to go outside and, you know, go back to doing a lot of things we all enjoy doing. Mike, thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.
join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective. 